0: Hi guys. So we're here with Matt Watson. He has a software development agency at full scale and he has a startup called Ad capacity that helps with some marketing and some some ad uh, creative turning on and off. Uh, So thanks for being with us today, Matt. And I'm looking forward to the conversation uh, that we have a little bit prepared. So yeah, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Matt Watson, been an entrepreneur and .NET developer for over 20 years. I know that's your favorite. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I have started uh, four different companies, sold a couple of different companies. Um, first company I started when I was 22, I sold when I was 29 for $150 million. So, been doing this for a long time, seen seen a little bit of everything. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, i I'm a software development software development nerd um, and, I, and a business nerd so um, thanks for having me today
0: I love that yeah you're who I want to be so yeah I wanted to talk a little bit about ad capacity first um, I love this uh, I love this idea can you give me the pitch for for this company this is your current company what you're working on today
1: yeah so if you had a water leak today and you call a plumber and they say they, they can't be there for three or four days, you would just hang up the phone and call the next plumber. Right? So it doesn't make any sense for them to spend money on advertisements. If they can't get, if they can't get to their customers within 24 or 48 hour, um, you know, timeframe. So we dynamically change all of their ads on Google and their website and all that kind of stuff to promote their real time availability and to turn off their ads, save, save money on advertising. If they can't, they can't handle the customers. So it's a relatively simple concept that nobody else does. Um, This was started five years ago um, by Katie Donovan and a company named uh, Camp Digital. And so this is kind of a spin-off of that, um, kind of version two of what they're doing. So it's pretty simple and I love it. uh, I love simple businesses.
0: Yeah, it's such a simple concept, it's so easy. And for me to build this, it's like, I would know how to build that. You just create a a, a hook-in with the Google Ads, and a little bit of a dashboard to say, "Hey, I'm I'm working. I, this is my schedule. This is what I got." Um, so something. But I it's not that easy. Idea. No, it's 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 not because you've spent the last five years figuring it out. I'm not saying I'm not saying that I can compete with you because you're way ahead. But what I'm saying is, it, in retrospect, like any good company, in retrospect, it's easy and it's obvious.
1: Yeah. Right? Yes. Because, but no, the but funny. the hard part. But the hard part is knowing how to sell it.
0: So something I think about a lot is is variable pri- pricing in time and place, right? So like you're talking about water leaks and plumbers, and that's a very entrenched industry that has been around forever. And I feel like people would be really off put and r- feel really nasty if you changed the price and you said, "Oh, today my hourly rate is 300." But yesterday, I didn't have that many customers, my hourly rate was 50, and they would hate that. So there has to be a way to smooth out the, the supply-demand curve for a single owner, right? And that's what you're doing. But instead of doing it with variable pricing, which would be nasty for customers, you're doing it with different ad spends. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, so we also dynamically control their promotions. So that, you know, a lot of times they will advertise like a $79 diagnostic fee or $99 diagnostic fee, um, and our software does change that. We, ch- we change that kind of pricing, um, or they'll advertise like a free value add. They're like, oh, we'll come fix your water leak, but we'll do a free camera drain inspection or a free whole house plumbing inspection or whatever. So that's dynamically done as part of the software too. We also change things like their service area. So like, hey, we haven't had a lot of work for the last few days. We want to expand our service area and run ads, you know, another 30 minutes away. We're, we're willing to drive another 30 minutes. So there's there's different pieces to it. But yeah, pricing is part of it. We change their pricing. Um, a lot of it for them is, for, for a lot of them, it's actually trying to get them to even do a price because historically, you know, you go to somebody's website and you're like, I need to fix my AC or I need to fix this plumbing issue, or whatever. You have no idea how much it's going to cost at all. So we actually um, really push our clients to at least advertise like, hey, there's a $79 diagnostic fee or whatever. But yeah, when they get in your house, that may cover the first 30 minutes. And then they're like, hey, it's $300 an hour or whatever. And and that some of them are, are kind of scammy that way and, and not a fan of that. Um, yeah. But that's kind of the way some of the business works.
0: Yeah, but when you're doing the... Uh when you're doing the promotions or the variable pricing it's only promotions. It's not like the standard price that's changing. You're only changing promotions. And I feel like people are okay with that, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's correct. So you're starting with like HVAC and plumbing places, but this isn't a problem only for them. This is a problem for anything. What's stopping your technology from from doing it for um, lawyers and doctors?
1: Yeah, so great question. And so that's why they brought me in to help with this about 18 months ago. Um, Camp Digital had been doing this only in home services. And they brought me in to turn it, you know, extract the technology part of this and figure out how to simplify it and how to take it to other industries. And so we are real close to taking it to potentially like automotive, like automotive service. Lawyers is good. A lot of healthcare care stuff. Um, there are a lot of other home services as well. Um, things like garage doors or pest control, roofing, all sorts of different things. But yeah, I mean, any, anything that's capacity constrained, like literally a funeral home, like a funeral home is booked for the next six weeks, stop advertising, right? It could be anything that has some kind of uh, capacity constraint. Or you so,
0: you people to stop dying, right?
1: That, yes, we're, we're trying.
0: So we talked a little bit about invisible apps, and I was giving you the pitch for my co- one of my companies, the Unsubscribe Robot, and how um, it's simply an email. You just forward an email to an email address to unsubscribe from that email list. And this company is just a behind-the-scenes, back-end algorithm that's just running 24-7, and whenever you get access to it it, it, it happens. So on your ad capacity, do you have a website? Do you have a user interface where people have to use it? Or is it just integrating right with the calendar? Because you could envision something where all I get is a calendar. And then it, like, does all these rules without it. Um,
1: that is the way it works. Yeah. It's automated. So, so we integrate so with their scheduling systems.
0: How it's invisible. And, like, you don't yeah. have, it's the, it. The, the 95% of the software, 95% of the work is just invisible to everybody. And it just happens. So talk to me a little bit yeah. about that.
1: Yeah, so we integrate with their scheduling system. So in our industry, you have field service management software that they use, like Service Titan is the the biggest, they're like a multi-billion dollar globally traded or uh, publicly traded company. There's also companies like Housecall Pro and others. So we just integrate with them to pull in the the schedules and then we have our own kind of algorithm we've built on top of it to calculate the capacity. It's not it's not rocket science or anything, but it's yeah, it just integrates with their schedule.
0: Can you talk to me about the algorithm? Like, I mean, I'm an algorithms guy. I love it. I've done some stuff with like radio frequency test and measurement, you know, some some solar panel stuff with NASA, just like crazy stuff. But my, my whole thing has always been the algorithm doesn't have to be that complicated. Just start with an expert system and say, what would a human do if he was pretty stupid and had a little calculator and was able to say, how much money can I make this week? Like, just figure out how much it's, your time is worth to you every hour and how much it's going to cost based on the advertisements that are being run. So talk to me, give me a little insight into this algorithm. How, how's it actually working? Cause so many people get like intimidated by that word and they like, think yeah, it's a I'm like, it's not a logarithm. Yeah. It's just the it's just way to get something done. So talk to me about how that works.
1: Yeah. That's the thing. Like you could, you could get into it like, Oh, what is drive time? And what is, what are the technicians and what are their skills and what parts do they have on their truck? And like, you could get all this crazy complexity to all this crap. Now we just look at uh, how many jobs they usually do a day and how long it usually takes them to do a job. And so it's it's like not that complicated. Now it does vary from one tech to another, right? You might have one tech that installs air conditioners and that's usually like an all day job versus the guy who does air duct cleaning and it takes two hours, right? So, but we just look at the history of what jobs they do and calculate an average, like it's not hard.
0: But you also have to look at price. You have to see how much is this worth to me? What's the profit margin? How much is it costing to do this? You don't have to break it down too much, but you have to have an average price, an average profit margin, because that's what the owner cares about.
1: They do. I mean, for for our sakes, we're just trying to figure out the availability. We don't know what leads they're going to get, what somebody's going to call about necessarily, right? Now, we do care... We do have what we call for some clients like more of a high value leads versus the low value services. So for example, and a plumber, they'd much rather do sewer repair sewer line repair. That's like the holy grail of, of big fees if you have a massive sewer sewer line issues. That could be like thousands of dollars to fix. Or fixing a water heater, things like that, or bigger ticket items. So we do have some customers where we'll we'll do different advertising for those higher value a bigger ticket things than a simple thing of like replacing a faucet or something. That's going to be low, low tickets. This
0: this seems like a good example. I come across clients that just want to build the most complicated thing right out, right out of the gate. And they're just like, we can, we can look at, we can look at gas price and that changes and we can find that data. And we also know exactly what parts he has in the, in the, in the van and we can send the guy that's closest. And we can look at his hourly rate because he's an apprentice and not a, not an expert yeah. and we look at, and then we look at the the demographic of the, of the client and whether or not they're going to be gullible enough to, to pay extra yeah. or do yes. pay anything. We can do all of these things. And Bill, build that for me today. I got a launch next week and let's have the whole thing. But you just described your successful company that's making money today in a really important market. And you have two categories. You have high ticket, and you have regular, and that's it.
1: Yeah, and so there yeah, I mean, I mean, we're on the lead generation side, right? But the side you're talking about is almost a little more on the dispatching side, and there is software that is specific to dispatching. So if you think about, like, we have a customer in Minneapolis that has, like, over 100 techs. For them, like, trying to optimize those 100 techs is, makes a lot of sense, right? If you can get another 10, 20, 30 jobs done a day, because you optimize those technicians, and it makes sense. But for most average like plumber stuff like that, they have like two or three techs or employees, like that stuff would be grossly overkill. It
0: depends it depends on your market. But you found a niche and you found a market that works. And you have a successful you know, a success with, with not that complicated of an algorithm. You don't start with the complicated algorithm. No. You don't you don't sell the enterprise first. You sell to the you sell to the mom and pop shops because there's just a million of them. That just seems like yeah. such the best strategy. So talk to me about Glue and how this backend system is just like the, the system that just, it's just a bunch of back-end work, the, the ugly infrastructure work that everybody, that, that all the developers hate and find boring.
1: Well, yeah, so whenever somebody talks about back-end software development, my perspective on back-end is totally different because when I think of back-end, I don't think of like a web server handling... You know web requests for a front-end like browser app right i think of like real apps that are running in the background doing scheduled work work off of queues and apis and all this kind of stuff my last company was a company called stackify and we processed millions of transactions an hour through data ingestion we ingested just billions of data points an hour and, you know, all the processing of that was crazy. It was insane, all the back-end processing. And that's, like, real, like, you're talking about, like, the the hidden, you know, software development that's going on behind the scenes. Any kind of company that's dealing with a lot of data has a lot of that kind of back-end uh, processing. And so when I think of back-end, I think of all of that. I don't think of, like, the simple web app stuff because that's, like, easy stuff. Um, but a lot of the real hard, complicated problems are in these background services. Well, I Performance think that's- and scalability and all these different issues uh, come up there, too.
0: Yeah, it's almost never about the UX and, the, and the, the, the user the user side on the front. I mean, that stuff's important. But the, the real value is on the back end. And, and the way I think about it is, like, I build Google every three months. Like I'm just building a new Google. And like it's not that hard to build what Google was in 1998. You just have to think about it real hard and think about how to do it. 'Cause you could do that with Elasticsearch today on a corpus the size of the Stanford yeah. library. It's not that big. You know? But the value of a company like Google becomes so much higher when you when you're able to take it from this this simple thing that you start with and then expand it out. And that's what the doctors and lawyers are thing. If you can sell it to them and you can change their capacity, that could be a billion dollar company, right? So I, I love I love something that's able to start small and earn enough of a living that you can you can pay for your food and pay for your housing and then you go ahead and you you just scale it out and it doesn't even require it wouldn't even require investment because you get two clients that are plumbers locally and then you just build it from there
1: yeah absolutely
0: the, the unsubscribe robot and you said that uh you said something about the the magazines you're getting
1: yeah so i love the idea of unsubscribing from email but i also love the idea of unsubscribing from physical mail so I know all the podcast listeners can see what I'm holding up now. It makes total sense on a podcast to show something on video. But I get so much mail every day I wish I could unsubscribe well, just, from. It's so. Junk mag-
0: it's just a junk magazine, which is exactly what these emails are. But yeah. I was going to share a story of this guy. I think he was on Long Island. And he said, hey, I'm not going to unsubscribe from this stuff because the Postal Service doesn't give me an unsubscribe button. It's just absurd. Right. So what he did was he actually went back and he... Um, he uh, subscribed to everything that he could he just sent back every letter and then and then he just bought a furnace and he just he just burned it all it was just like i got i got this little lighter thing here let's see if we can get it on here we go yeah. i don't know if it's even going to work there we go but he just burned his whole fucking thing he 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 he, he, he heated his house with all <laughs> the damn emails that came to his door he just bought all the newspapers all the magazines, all the periodicals, and then he threw them in the furnace, and he burned it. I think I that's love genius. It. But you can't do that with an email. Like, what, what are you going to do with that? You just start collecting data on all these companies, and, like, I don't know, I can't even think of what the application would be. But, like, I don't know, a lot of people have, like, multiple email addresses for these spam things, but yeah. so many spam subscriptions are just subscriptions to services that you need, and then they just start spamming you. It's just ridiculous. It's just... It's just everybody's just trying to sell you more of the same and and they 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 almost always get you they just always get you and it's ridiculous
1: so yeah I love also, the idea of, I love the idea of being able to easily unsubscribe from the stuff because it always annoys the hell out of me I get so much spam and junk mail so
0: well the purpose the purpose of, of my service is that it's very privacy conscious right so for unroll me and some of the other ones you have to give access to your entire systems and the idea is you pay them with your data you pay them with the fact that you've sent all these emails you've received all these emails and what they're doing is they're mining your data for correlation someone someone who subscribes to ink magazine also subscribes to entrepreneur magazine so let's do a lot of cross posting and maybe let's find some interesting things maybe the people that are subscribing to ink magazine also buy bowers and wilkins speakers right who knows what the correlations are, but if we can mine that data and we can help you with one or two unsubscriptions along the way, like wouldn't that be great, right? So you're always paying somehow and I think people are starting to understand that they're paying with their data and that these are really nasty things that the, the companies are doing with them because they're manipulating them and they're manipulating the consumer and they're making it really uh, really tough. So we talked yeah, a little absolutely. bit about... Yeah, Yeah, so we talked a little bit about our early days of, of software engineering. I, I started out as uh, Logo, that was like an education language, but then I did some Java, and then, uh, and then I did some VBA, that was my first paid job, that was kind of cool. Um, and VBA, for those that don't know, is Visual Basic for Applications, so it's a Microsoft product for Microsoft Excel. I think it's for any of the services, but um, I was doing it in Excel, and I was doing some uh, uh, power, uh, power generation efficiency calculations. Okay. And I was writing in VBA and creating some, some visualizers and, and things like that. Um, and you said, Matt, that you're doing a lot of .NET, or at least in your career you've done a lot of .NET. So my favorite thing right now, largely because it's very commercialized, or not even commercialized, but it's very it's very lucrative. I like Python a lot today. But tell me why Python sucks and why why I should build my app with .net. Like if you had the choice, you'd build it in .net because you love .net. So tell me tell me why. Get a little controversial here. Why why do you Uh
1: I don't like dynamic languages. I don't like any of the scripting languages that don't compile. Not a, not a fan.
0: Okay. So you don't like that it's you don't like that it's interpreted and you don't like that it's dynamic.
1: Well, I don't I don't like when I go to look at the code. I have no idea. Like, oh, I pass in three parameters to this method. I have no idea what the hell the three parameters are. Are they strings? Are they integers? Are they objects? I don't even friggin' know. Oh. Like, I don't. I hate the that doesn't have you know strong typing and and compilers and all this stuff. And and then yeah. and then everybody wants. And then everybody wants. You know, you need test driven development for all this, but it's mostly because you don't have a compiler.
0: good summary let me let me tell you why so there are there are some strong (laughs) typing libraries for python that let you have uh some strong typing and let you say integer and string and all that stuff um and i don't believe in test driven development not for MVPs. i don't believe you should test it at all i think you should have user user tests that say let me check the happy path and let me check some some edge cases but writing test-driven development is just writing double code and usually writing triple code and usually writing really crap code. That's what it means to me. So the way I think about this question with the with the, the strongly typed and, and what you're talking about is I think about writable languages and I think about readable languages. And I worked at Google. I wrote a lot of Python. I wrote a lot of Golang. And Golang was a, was a language developed by Google as, a, as, a, as I know you know. and. Uh, Google is a huge company, 60,000 engineers at the time. And as an engineer there, the majority of the time you spend is reading other people's code. Yes. Yeah. Understanding it. And then, 100%. And then, delete, and then deleting it. And deleting code is very dangerous at Google. Because you delete the wrong thing, you can turn off the data center. At least, when, at least where I worked. There was places where I could drop the stock of Google by 5% in a day. And 5% is how much? A couple billion dollars? Billions. I, I had the power to do that. If I deleted the wrong thing and convinced one person that it was okay, that's all that it took. That's all that it took. And uh, so Google developed this language called Golang, and Golang is a very readable language. It's strongly typed. It has functions. It's very functional like the like the Haskell's and the OCaml's of the world, which I think are some of the most beautiful languages there are. They're the most difficult to understand, but some of the most beautiful languages to look at. And Golang is just very readable. And for me, Python is the most writable language. It's the most easy to learn. It's the easiest to write. And it's the easiest to hack a bunch of shit together.
1: It looks like Visual Basic.
0: Like Visual Basic? I'm not... Yeah. So I did the VBA stuff... The scripting in the in the Excel. So maybe that's why I like it so much.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very like English like yeah. It's
0: really hackable. But but you're right, it's not super uh, doesn't have a lot of longevity to it. If you hire a bad developer, he hacks something together, and then you have to say, Ooh, now we have to sell this for a million dollars, or we have to sell this company for a hundred million. And it's like, ooh, I don't like that code. That code doesn't look that good, and I don't know if it's gonna—I don't know if it's gonna last. So I get why people don't like, um, why people don't want to be using Python for that sort of thing. But, pitch me why is a good MVP language because I just told you why I think scripting is better.
1: Well, I think. The problem with .NET and, and even Java is historically they've been more enterprise languages and people just overcomplicate the hell out of everything for no reason. Um, with, you know, all the different development architecture principles and all these things, they just overcomplicate it, right? But you don't have to. I mean, I think, uh, .NET can be as simple as Ruby or Python or anything else. It doesn't, I mean, you can write really simple apps and, uh, it doesn't have to be complicated at all. I think just a lot of enterprise thinking overcomplicates all of it. And I've been using .NET since it was in the early betas, and it's it's definitely changed dramatically. And went from you know things like MVC came out and and used MVC, which was you know more popularized by Rails on Ruby and stuff, which now everybody does. And um, and now most of it's all front end using Vue or Angular or React or whatever. And so it's changed dramatically. It's like every five to 10 years, there's like major, major changes. Um, yeah. But building the the backend part of a web app and .NET, I think is a, to me, is a great option. I, I I love .NET and I like the fact that it's strongly typed and compiled and all different stuff. So. Yeah.
0: Well, don't get it wrong. You can write really complicated, really good looking Python. It just takes yeah. a lot of work. And I see, I see posts on my LinkedIn because I follow a lot of Python influencers and they give all these complicated things about the best way to create a generator and the best way to do all these different things. And I say, hey, if you're a junior engineer that's one year out of college, doesn't understand it in about 30 seconds, you're doing the wrong thing. You just
1: well, and I... And, and I love your your point earlier about most most software developers spend most of their time reading code, right? And, yeah. you know, to your point there, it's like, I'd much rather use something that is just easy to understand and easy to read. Um, the, the simpler the solution, the better for me, I, I much prefer simpler solutions.
0: Well, that's, that's, here's, there's the thing Matt. if you say simple, depends who you're talking to. Yeah, if you talk to if you talk to a principal engineer, and 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 you say I want simple, he's gonna pick out the most complicated thing there is.
1: Well I have a theory I have a theory on this. My theory is so when we first become software developers the first couple of years or so, we you know, we figure things out and, and you know, we we learn the basics. And I feel like most software developers as their career goes on kind of past that, they feel like they need to make the code more complicated, more architecture, more abstraction, more frameworks, more this, right? And it feels like you're talking about the principal engineer, it's like They got that way because over all all these years, they figured out how to do all these things very complicated, where that's really like an inverse pattern. Like, I feel like you you should learn to do things simpler. (laughs) But most people, I feel like that's the path they go down. It's like the longer they do software development, the more complicated they want to make things, where I'd much rather just have them be simpler. How can we make them even more simpler?
0: Well, I don't like the word simple, again, because it just depends who you ask and the thing yeah. that i think about sometimes the thing that i think about sometimes is length of code because a lot of these algorithm interview questions are solved by iterating over the list twice i don't know if you're familiar with these questions but a lot of times there's like an operation that you have to do and if you do both of the operations in one loop you get it in an n squared and if you do the operation once and you do some pre-processing and then you do the operation a second time and then do the actual operation you do it in 2n and of course, as you know, 2n is the same as an n. And n is a lot better than n squared. So I think about length of code. I think about breaking it up into more methods that are easy to read in a short amount of time and just having a lot of code. Because, you know, when I worked in algorithm work with the frequen- te- radio frequency test and measurement, my boss, a genius, wrote in HT Basic, which was a really esoteric, really old language, and when he wrote the code, what mattered was how many characters you used for variables. The amount of space on the hard drive was so small that he had to use single letter variables in large thousand line programs. And I had to decipher this between a C and an A, and I had to remember what it was and then rewrite it. It was a nightmare.
1: That sounds terrible.
0: It was terrible.
1: (laughs) That sounds awful. People
0: people get into this thing where they're like, "I want to be as concise as possible," and you don't have to be concise. You just don't have to be concise. And I believe verbose—not verbose—is the wrong word. I believe, uh, like a, a lengthy, a lengthy method, is simpler and easier to understand. Than a concise one, and a lot of these programming principles come from being concise. And what you need is a good modular system that has a solid architecture, and then not be too concise in the methods. What What do you think about all that?
1: I agree with you. I'd I'd much rather optimize for the next person who's going to look at this code. How quickly can they figure out what it does? Right. I'd I'd rather optimize for that. And um, yeah, people people go crazy over. Solid principles, and don't repeat yourself, and all these different things. But it's it's trying to figure out when, huh?
0: Repeat yourself.
1: Sometimes it's the, sometimes it's the easiest thing to do. Yeah, that. I mean, you're you're more likely to break the code by trying to make one way to do things but have four different, you know, versions of it or whatever, but... Uh,
0: this, is, this is the problem that you're facing, but you're facing it in the business world, right? Because you have this code that works for the plumbers, you have it for the AC yeah. people, and now you're kind of trying to abstract, abstract, abstract application it or make it more abstract so that it works for other industries, and it should be easy because somebody, the first person that wrote it, wrote it specifically for an industry, and now it doesn't need to be for that industry. Yeah. So... So talk to me about abstracting in the business case, because that's that's what we really care about. In order to scale your business, in order to grow and make some more money, you have to abstract in the right direction, in the right way, and it doesn't have to do with the code. It just doesn't have to do with the code. So talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, so for us, it's building flexibility around the different services that they provide and like how we group them and do do different things with that. Um, and. At the heart of our software is really something we call the availability service that is a bunch of basically business rules and logic, right? It's trying to figure out based on how many appointments they have for the next so many days or, you know, are they available or not available and what is their time guarantee and what if there's a holiday based on the time of day and, you know, all these different kind of variables that go into it. It's really complicated, but it's an example, a perfect example of something that needs a lot of testing, a lot of unit testing. So we have a lot like the, the amount of testing code we have is probably five times the amount of code that actually runs this uh, availability service. There are so many different test cases. Um, so it's actually, you know, example of something that needs a shitload of testing. Um, but for us, yeah, it was making a really flexible kind of rules engine around, around all of it.
0: I love rules engines, those are so fun. So uh, we were talking, you, you said something else that was interesting, um, that engineering is the easy part. And I think it depends on who you're talking to. You said selling this stuff to the right people, that's the hard part. I believe it's all about who you are and what your experience is, right? Because I bet you if you talk to an enterprise sales executive or an enterprise sales engineer, he'd say the selling is the easy part, the building is the hard part, or getting my boss to give me leeway to do this thing is the hard part, right? So you're saying the engineering is the easy part. So what that says to me is you're a good engineer and you know how to manage engineers, right? So it just depends who you're talking to. And the people that I talk to, my clients, have a really hard time building it. And you said you meet a lot of people who are coding in their basements, build a great product, and they never get it out there because they don't have a good market fit. So you know a lot of hackers that are building stuff. I know a lot of clients that are unable to build stuff because they don't have a good development shop. But you said you have 300 engineers in the Philippines. I love the Philippines. Do Do you know why I love the Philippines? Why? New York City is the capital of the world, and Philippines is twelve hours off. So if you can learn to assign enough work to someone in the Philippines that they can work while you sleep, it's
1: yeah, just the cheapest, <laughs> it's
0: just the cheapest time zone in the world. Just the cheapest, cause it's the hardest to work for, to work with, because they're so far yeah. off. Yeah.
1: Well, is- our I'm in I'm in Central Time. I'm in Kansas City, but a lot of our employees there shift their schedule. So you know, there, there's definitely a second shift culture in the Philippines. There's millions of people that work in call centers and all kinds of other jobs. So the joke there is, you know, 5 a.m. is about the same as 5 p.m. here. So it, it's it's happy hour at 5 a.m. there as well. Like okay. a lot of people work U.S. hours.
0: My favorite my favorite employee drinks way too much. He's just. He, like I, I talked to him. I talked to him in my midnight, and he's like, "Yeah, I got a beer. Check out this photo," and I'm like, "That's such an amazing photo. My photos suck. Like, I don't live as good of a life as this guy because he's he's living like a king. It's great. I love it."
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I started hiring developers there about five years ago for my last startup, and yeah. it. Turned into an accidental business. You know, some other friends of mine around town said, hey, Matt, if this works for you, you know, can you help me build a development team there? And just turned into an accidental business, though. So now we have 300 employees, and we work for over 50 different companies building, building stuff. A lot of early stage companies, kind of growth stage startups, smaller businesses. But
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's the company I'm looking to build. You know, the problem is, we talked about cheap engineering. And uh, you know, I build prototypes for, for fifteen thousand that are supposed to be eighty five when you talk to my competitors and not only do that, but I, I give the consulting to tell them how to build their business for free along with yeah. the MVP. And I, I, I make enough to live, but I'm not I'm not making what I'm worth. And I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to find the right model to, to charge people for this advice. And I think, I think you might have a good one where you're just like building the companies and then you're just, you're not even giving the advice to these people. You're just, you're just doing the MVPs or not even MVPs, you're doing the software development, right?
1: We, yeah, we, and we don't do project work either. We, we primarily just um, do staff augmentation. It's like people that already have a development team and they're just looking to add developers to their team. you're,
0: You're acting as the recruiter and saying, this is a vetted developer that makes this much an hour. And, and sell it out that way. Is that what
1: you're saying? Yeah, but they they do end up being full time contractors, so it's not just like a staffing fee. I mean, there are our employees and they they work long time for the for the clients. But yeah, yeah, sure. we. But you you mentioned earlier about development being the easy part of it. I think writing code has definitely gotten easier over my career, and building software has gotten way easier over my career. I think it's almost more like software assembly these days than anything. Um, if you just it, there's There's packages for everything, all the cloud hosting for all the different things. Like a lot of it is just assembling it all together. But, you know, knowing what to build and how to build it is the hard part. And I understand like the how to build it bleeds into the engineering side of it. But as you mentioned for your clients, a lot of times that's what you're trying to help them with is trying to figure out what is the priority? What is the architecture of this thing? How do we build this thing? But actually, like if you know exactly what to write and go write the code itself, it's not. It's not that hard to actually go write the code. It's just making all the decisions. It's making all the decisions up to that point that I think is super hard. And so when people talk about AI replacing software development, like I, the the this part of software development that's so hard is the part that I don't think the AI can do.
0: Well, they, it has to determine. It has to determine the human needs. At the end of the day, software serves the humans. Yeah. And and you have to figure out. How are we going to optimize? how are we going to um, how are we going to translate these, these bits and bytes and keystrokes into something tangible in the real world? Because there's not that much that's like that valuable in the virtual world. I mean we've got video games, we got NFTs, we got art and then we have money. But what does money buy? Money buys food, money buys flowers. Money buys a nice house right? And if, if you can't translate that and create, create an easier way to get people to spend their money, they're not going to. And that's what the business is, right? So,
1: well, and, and a lot of time with software development, I feel like the challenge is figuring out what not to do, right? Because, you know, if, if you're running a software development team, it's like, we could do all of these things. There's a 100 different directions we could go, but a lot of them are the wrong direction, or it takes us away from whatever our core product is, our core client is, right? And I'm sure this is something you deal with in your, your practice with people is getting them to focus. Like, no, this is what the product needs to do. We need to stay focused on this thing because you can easily run rampant 100 different directions and then, then you never end up with... Yeah, then you run up with an app that just makes no sense. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of it about hyper-optimizing on a single a single use case that, that somebody with a headache has. If somebody has a headache and yeah. asks you about it, you can't just go and build for it. You have to stay true to the vision and say, "Hey, this is my ideal client, and I'm not building for other people." And even if they big, even if they give a big check, it doesn't matter because that. It's the-
1: so hard, though. It's so hard to do that, though. What's that? It's so hard when you're when you're running a business. It's so hard, right? Because your sales team comes in, they're like, "Hey, we can get this deal if you add this thing," and you are like, "Oh shit, fine. We'll add. We'll add the thing. Add the thing." Here's a check,
0: Here's a check for three months' revenue. Yeah. Just build this thing in a week and it's like oh great wouldn't I love that revenue it's
1: crazy. it's hard it's hard to say no to that
0: it's a crazy thing I agree and it's not always the wrong answer sometimes you got to say yes you know because it's yeah just, it's just it's just who who are you going after right and that's that's the challenge of, of of walking down this road and figuring out figuring out where to go so uh that's all the topics that we had uh, for today so just Give me the pitch on on the software development shop, and uh, how you guys are doing, and, and tell us where where we can find you if you if we liked what we heard uh, what we heard today.
1: Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I post on LinkedIn um, just about every day. Spoke for Matt Watson. Uh, also host a podcast called The Startup Hustle. It's a top uh, podcast on entrepreneurship. We've done twelve hundred episodes over the last five years, um, and then Full Scale you know as we described earlier software development company out of the philippines we help other we help provide the talent for other companies um, that are looking to hire developers in the philippines which costs 60 70 80% less than hiring somebody in the united states and so we specialize in finding senior, senior level talent for people um, and it's amazing the talent that is out there and most people don't realize that 90% of software developers in the world are not in the united states I don't and know. You got it. They don't, and that number is going down every day. Like, the, the, like you know, if ten percent of the software developers are in the United States, like twenty years ago, that might have been fifteen or twenty percent or whatever, right? Like that percentage is going down every every day, as all these other countries have more and more talent as well. Um, there's so much talent out there, and um, you know, especially if you're trying to build, you know, an early stage startup and, and costs are tight, like you can take advantage of global talent and um, you can you can save a lot of money. So.
0: For sure. Well, thanks, Matt. And uh, as always for this podcast, MVP Engineer, don't subscribe, stop listening to me, and go <laughs> build your fucking company. Get the work. Thanks, guys.